I'll draw your attention back to Ephesians 5 this morning. Ephesians 5, we'll begin reading in verse 21, and we'll read down through verse 33, on the end of chapter 5. Actually, let's start in uh, verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However... Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we've had another opportunity to come before you, Lord, as as a local body here, and to worship you, to look to your word, Lord, to honor you as as God, as sovereign to honor the work that Christ has done on our behalf, saving us, redeeming us, shedding His blood for us, and for the work of the Holy Spirit, indwelling us, making us alive, and and revealing these things to us. Lord, we ask that You would just hold us captive to the Word of God this morning. Lord, that we might learn from it, that we might hold it in our hearts as we meditate on it throughout the week. Lord, it's in the name of Christ we ask these things. Amen. One of the I guess we can call it a privilege but one of the difficult things also about preaching through a book of the Bible, unless you do it where you just say, I'm just going to preach ten messages on this book, is you don't get to skip anything. There are some hard passages in Paul's writings. This happens to be one of those because the world hates it so much. The world hates what Paul has to say here. We live in a corrupt world. That's the testimony of Scripture, isn't it? Infallible, the infallible Word of God tells us that we live in a corrupt world. 
man sinned and the whole world fell into an absolutely dreadful state. God's Word tells us in Genesis 6-5, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's at the depth of who man is. That every thought, every intention was evil continually. Ever since the fall that we read about there in Genesis, there's been a curse placed upon the serpent, the woman, and upon man. But this fall was so devastating that even the ground itself was cursed. You ever think about that? Genesis 3.17 says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Well, you can pretty easily say that the effects of the fall have been immense. Every institution, even those institutions that God designed for us, even the society that God designed, the institutions that are in in those have been plagued by the fall, by sin, and the corruption of sin. Think about it. Does, Does your own observations of what goes on in the world not bear witness to this as well? Think about what you see on a regular basis. Communication between each other, corrupted by sin, right? Even communication. Government. Government's instituted by God. Is our government good? Or is it corrupted by sin? Education. We've got teachers here. Education, the system itself, has been corrupted by sin. About society itself. What about religion? What about even that? What about family and marriage? Is there anything that you can think of that is attacked more violently and consistently in this world than family and marriage. The enemies of God know that this is where they gain ground. This is it. It's where they gain ground. Destroy marriage, corrupt the family, and all these other areas of society start to decay and break down, become corrupt. I don't want to get political. I don't think that that's our purpose. That's not the purpose of what we as God's people do and proclaim, but everything that we do and proclaim has implications in politics, in the way that our society runs. And we are to be salt and light in the world, holding fast to what glorifies God Shining the light that we talked about a few weeks ago, right? Shining that light 
in the light of God's word into every area of our life, every facet of our life, every arena we walk into, everywhere we work, everywhere we live. We are to be shining into society even, that light of God's word. I want to share a few statistics with you this morning, though, so we can understand what the corruption of marriage has done to our society. These statistics center around fatherlessness. I was first introduced to these. There's a group called Majesty Outdoors down in Texas that centers around a mentorship program. Mom has had some dealings with them. Uh, Mentorship programs for those that are in fatherless homes where there's nobody to fulfill that fatherly role in the home. I do want to say that that we can praise God that this isn't always the case with those that are fatherless. That by His grace and by His mercy, He works even in the midst of of the, the thing that family is not designed to be, to bring those out of that situation, to give them grace and give them mercy, and set them in the right way. But listen to these statistics, and I think you'll understand why the attack by our enemy and by our enemies even within society that are ruled under our enemy want to attack family and want to attack marriage so much. A fatherless child is four times more likely to live in poverty. 85% of youth in prison come from a fatherless home. 90% of homeless and runaway children come from a home without a father. 63% of youth suicides come from a fatherless home. 71% of dropouts come from that home. A teenage girl that comes from a fatherless home is seven times more likely to become pregnant as a teen. 75% of youth in drug treatment come from a fatherless home. And they are much more likely to be involved in criminal activity and end up in prison. All of this, first and foremost, because sin has come into the world. But that sin working through to corrupt the institution that God has designed as marriage. God has ordained marriage. And he has instituted and ordained the roles for a man and a woman in marriage. It just flabbergasts me that we even have to put emphasis on that today. A man and a woman in marriage. Paul deals with these things in our text this morning. And I want us to look at these things, but if you get nothing else out of this message, if there's nothing else that you retain and take home with you, I want you to remember this. Marriage is a picture of something far greater than marriage itself. Marriage is a picture of the relationship, the union of Christ to his people of Christ to the church, to His body. So for us to understand what it is that marriage is, we must understand what Christ is to the church. 
and what the church is to Christ. And we'll be dealing with this over the next two weeks, uh, this Sunday and next Sunday. Do you see even clearer, clearer now why it is that Paul spent the first three chapters? We keep on coming back to this, right? Why it is that Paul spent the first three chapters dealing with doctrine, dealing with theology. Or to put things simpler, he spent the first three chapters dealing with what God has purposed, what he has planned, and what he has done in history, what he's doing in the present, and what he will do in the future for the bride of Christ, for his church, for his body. And he details out what he has done in the work of Christ Jesus to accomplish this. And it's this knowledge and, and understanding of this which will enable us to understand this marriage between husband and wife. It'll bring forth the sweetness of the union between husband and wife. And it will give us a perfect picture of how it works, how it is to be, and how it should be played out in our lives as believers. This may sound controversial, but the more I look at these things and the more I understand about these things, it's my conviction that marriage is not for those that are outside of Christ. Not at all. They can know very little, if anything, of its meaning. Those outside of Christ, they may be joined in a civil union, but it is not a marriage. God gave us marriage that it might be a symbol of what Christ is to the church. The redeemed the Lord may understand this because they are the bride of Christ. A civil union between unbelievers may by the grace of God turn into a marriage if he regenerates the souls of those involved in that union. But it will only be a marriage when both of them are united to Christ. Well, we ended last week with verse 21 of Ephesians 5, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I said that this is the foundation for the rest of this chapter, chapter the rest of chapter 5, 22 through 33, and the first part of chapter 6, 1 through 9. Out of reverence. Submitting one to one another out of reverence for Christ. We as Christians submit to one another out of reverence for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Some translations put it in the fear of Christ or in the fear of God. But what is, in, in, what is being mentioned here and, and what, is, what the, the meaning of this is in reverence for Christ. Because we honor our Lord for who He is and what He has done, we submit to one another. Ian Hamilton, in a commentary that Ian Hamilton wrote, said nothing would, be, would do more to elevate the internal life of a church and enhance its gospel witness 
than an all-pervasive servant spirit among its members. Esteeming one another better than ourselves and going out of the way to seek the good of others in the church fellowship would add luster to the church life and give an added credibility to our calling to shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of life. Can you imagine what it would be like in my workplace if I lived this the way that God calls me to live it? Out of reverence for Christ, counting others more than myself. Peter, in speaking to the elders and then those who are younger, states in 1 Peter 5, 5, Likewise, you who are longer, younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humility. What is being humble? Thinking of others better than yourselves. Paul gives out the marks of a Christian in Romans 12. And in verse 10, he says that one of these is love. And then he has an exhortation which adds, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And again, Paul addresses the concept of submitting one to another in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourself. As we said last week, this is a call to do something that cannot be done in the flesh. It is totally and utterly contrary to the flesh to submit to another. It's not in us to do that. We're proud, we're haughty, the opposite of humble. It's only possible to those who are filled with the Spirit. Isn't that what he tells us in the last part of verse 18, but be filled with the Spirit? That's how this is possible. There's a very good reason for Paul addressing this. He is addressing issues in this letter to the Corinthians regarding this. And, and he does this for a very good reason. There were divisions between members of the church due to several things, and part of it was not submitting to one another. We find this in uh, other letters, other epistles of Paul, that there are these divisions that come up because they're not submitting one to another out of reverence for Christ. They're not being humble with one another, counting others to be better than themselves or more significant than themselves. <clears throat> the motive for the Christian should be out of respect and honor out of reverence for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that we should seek those things and do those things which are in accordance with His revealed will and to His glory, to the, to, to, to the glory of Christ, to the glory of our head. We're the body, remember? Paul's already dealt with this. We're the body, he's the head. We should do those things and seek to do those things and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ so that our head may be crowned with all the glory and honor befitting Him. Out of reverence for Christ. 
So then we have this foundation that's built here in verse 21 <clears throat> for the rest of what Paul is going to be dealing with in the particulars of this submission to one another. And Paul starts, and with very good reason, Paul starts with the wife and the husband. In verse 22 and 24, he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. <clears throat> Why does he start here with the particulars of the wife and the husband? of their marriage and, and what this marriage should look like and, and what the particulars of submitting one to another in this marriage looks like. Well, I would suggest to you that it's because marriage is one of the most profound concepts and the most foundational elements of everything that we see in society. Paul doesn't start with the relationship of children to parents. He doesn't start with the relationship of masters to slaves or bondservants, as our translation here puts it. He starts with the relationship of husband and wife. How the wife relates to her husband and how the husband relates to the wife is the foundation for the children. And ultimately... It becomes the foundation for everything else that takes place in society as learned through the example of that union of husband and wife. Think about what we talked about earlier with the statistics. Do those not bear, bear out the evidence of what happens in other areas of life? when the examples of the relationship of husband and wife are in disorder, are corrupted? Does it not bear that out? Where there is no father, there is no picture of submission for the wife to the head. There is no picture of headship behavior of the husband, of the love and protection of the husband for the wife. Now, as we stated previously, God can work miraculously in lives who have not had this example before them, not had this example modeled for them, shown to them day in and day out, but that is not the way that God has ordered marriage and life to be. Broken homes are a result of sin. Fatherless homes are a result of sin. Motherless homes are a result of sin. And willful disregard for what God says is right and what God says is good. But either way, normally speaking, what flows out of the marriage relationship and the example of that relationship goes on through those who witness it or the lack of, of it into every area of that individual's life. That's why we have the statistics that we do for fatherless homes. Now we get to the part that society hates. 
what feminists rail against. Because they have no understanding of the concept of what a husband is. We'll get to that, Lord willing, next week. We'll touch on it today. Paul says that wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Do you see what a dreaded word submission is in our culture today, in our society? Try getting on the news and talking about submission. They're going to find out who you are, they're going to dox you, and they're going to send you all kinds of nasty, nasty letters and emails and everything else. It's counter to everything that society says is right. It's completely opposite. But our guide, our rule of faith and practice is not what society says is right. But it's what God says is right. See, ultimately, this isn't my argument, right? It's not my argument. Society's problem with me saying this is a result of me adhering to what Scripture says. There are some, even in professing Christian circles today, who would soften this and twist it and distort it, and would say things, I've, I've read from some of, the, some of the, some individuals, I won't mention them by name right now, but some of these individuals who will even say that this is just Paul speaking. This is, this is not the words of God, this is just Paul. Not really scripture is what they're trying to say. They do this because they're afraid of what society thinks. They fear society more than they fear God. So they soften, do away with, skip over, or twist the Scriptures for their benefit so as not to offend. After all, I've got million-dollar budgets to worry about. The budgets of some of these churches blows my mind. Popularity they have to worry about. More worried about their popularity than their profession of faith. a lot to be accountable for one day. Peter even makes a reference to the twisting of Scripture in these ways. In 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, listen to what Peter says here. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him the wisdom given to wisdom given to paul as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant an unstable twist to their own destruction. 
as they do other scripture. You see what Peter is saying here? Peter is saying that these writings of Paul, that these writings to you by Paul are according to wisdom given to him, not his own wisdom. These ideas didn't come from Paul. But that they're ideas that were given to him. And Peter calls them Scripture. Doesn't this sound familiar to us? Hadn't Paul said something like this that we've looked at? Look back at Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3.1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me. It didn't come from me. It was given to me. How the mystery was made known to me. I didn't devise it. I didn't come up with it. I didn't fabricate it. It was given to me by revelation as I've written briefly. Then look look at verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister. I didn't choose to be a minister. Some committee didn't select me. No, I was on the road to Damascus and Christ struck me down. And He revealed these things to me. Well then... Let wives submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. This is not about women being inferior. Nothing to do with that. But about what God has ordained in marriage to be the role for the wife and to be the role for the husband. And He has fit them each according to the roles that He's placed them in. The female is not inferior to the husband. But by God's grace and purpose, He has given each of the sexes roles in life and areas where they are suited and even physically suited or created according to His purpose for each one of those roles. Men and women are not men and women by accident, in other words. God created them in the way that he did for a purpose. Look back at Genesis 2. Back to the beginning, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is purpose in this creation. Eve made up what was missing in Adam. There was none fit for him. She was to be a helpmate, for there was not a helper to be found in all of creation fit for Adam. So God made Eve from Adam to be the perfect helper fit for him in every way. Is it any wonder that there in verse 24, it says that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. This is marriage. This is marriage. Two becoming one. They are now whole. One flesh, almost as if it, if it could be one being. That's how closely knit together a husband and wife are to be. So fitted to one another, perfectly compatible, each fill, filling what the other lacks. Eve was the perfect helper, fit for Adam. And then comes the curse. In comes the curse. And we read that even this oneness between Adam and Eve was broken by, by sin. So that this perfect love of Adam and the submission of Eve, the perfect union, even that would be a struggle. And would be for the rest of mankind as they inherit the sin nature from Adam. Genesis 3.16, To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. But even in the curse, even in the curse, there was a promise of restoration. Look at the previous verse there. Let me get back to it. In verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. As he, right before he pronounced the curse on Eve, he pronounced the curse on the serpent. And in that, there was the promise of the seed of the woman. This is what theologians refer to as the proto-evangelium. The first gospel. 
It's what Proto-Evangelium means. The first gospel. The first good news. Here, even in the curse, is the gospel. The good news of restoration. Restoration to, to the relationship that man should have with God. Here is a possibility of restoration that the seed of the woman would come. But also, the restoration of the ability for a man and a woman to have the union in, a, in the way that God had ordained that union to take place. That the wife, though by sinful nature, is at odds with God, and as a result of that sinful nature and the curse at odds with even her husband, and in a struggle for leadership, your, your desires will be contrary to that of your husband. God told Eve. Even a, a struggle for leadership or headship within the family. But Christ has come. The promise of Christ even appeared there in Genesis. The Christ, the promise of Christ has come, the good news of Christ, the, the first gospel for the woman that she may, may be reconciled to God. And not only that, but her relationship as a new creature being born again may now be that which she was created to be as a helpmate for her husband. And the man we will later see because of this gospel news this message of Christ can be that which was which he was created to be in that man and woman union to love his wife the way that God designed him to love and care and protect and provide for his wife do you see how this Exhortation from Paul to the wife and to the husband is impossible if not for the work of Christ. Do you see how it's a picture of what Christ has done for the church? Do you begin to see that? And Paul says that the wife is to submit as to the Lord. This submission to the Christian husband is as to the Lord. Not merely that she's also submissive to the husband as she is to the Lord, but more than that, that part of her submission to the Lord is submission to her husband. It's all bound up in her submission to the Lord. It's part of his revealed will, the will of the Lord, as Paul has written them in both this epistle and the epistle that we read earlier in our scripture reading in, in Colossians 3, that this is the will of the Lord. That the wife submit to, their, to her husband as to the Lord. And he tells us why he exhorts the wife to submit to their own husband as to the Lord. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, 
even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he and is himself its savior. The husband has been given to be the head of the wife. As we looked at from Genesis a moment ago, and then the comparison is made that this is to be even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, as Paul previously declared the church to be in Ephesians 1. If we look back at Ephesians 1, 22 through 23, and he put all things, that's God the Father. Uh, you'll remember back that there's a lot of these he's here, and we have to be able to decipher which, which person of the Trinity this is. Uh, if, you, if you need another one of those sheets, I'm happy to provide it for you. But it's, and he, that's God the Father, put all things under his, that's Christ's feet, and gave him, that's Christ, as head over the church, all things to the church, which is his body. That's Christ's body. The fullness of him, it's Christ who fills all in and all. So then again, the relationship of the wife to the husband is a picture and is rightly understood in light of the relationship of the church to Christ. And as the church is to submit itself to the lordship and the headship of Christ, so is the wife to submit herself to her own husband, to no other husband. What does it say here? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and his himself its savior. Starts with wives, verse 22, submit to your own husband. Your own husband. This is this comparison that's being made, wife, her own husband, church, the head, it's Christ. This is as the church is to have no other head but Christ, so is the wife to have no other head but her husband, her own husband. She is to submit to no other. The church will have no other Lord over her. She has no other head. She is particularly his, and he is particularly hers. So it is with the Christian wife and husband. There is no multiplicity of wives and husbands. And a home cannot exist without a head, as the body of Christ cannot exist without its head. Now before we even get next week to the exhortation of men, we even now begin to see Paul laying the groundwork for these things. As he states this, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior, we have a very peculiar analogy here. That Christ certainly is, truthfully is, the only Savior of the church. But this differs some, somewhat from what the husband is, as he cannot be the Savior of his wife in the same way that Christ is the Savior of the church. 
I won't get into all that is said by various commentators on this passage. I think most of them get bogged down in technicalities and miss what is just vitally important here about the role of the husband and how the wife may be submissive under his headship. It's within the context of what Paul is dealing with about the husband and the wife here. I would suggest that the model, the picture, the type of Christ as the church's Savior is there to point men to that type and depth of love that Christ had for the church. My death will not redeem to a holy God my wife. My blood will not cover her sin. That alone is the blood of Christ that can do that but the type of love I have for my wife should be the type of love that led Christ to go to Calvary and shed His blood on the cross for the redemption of sins. Do you see what I'm getting at there? It's a picture of the depth and the type of the love that Christ had for His church that the husband should have for his wife. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a giving love. We'll speak more about this later when we arrive at it. But if you remember back when we were dealing with Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, I said that love is not a feeling. Real love is not a feeling. Love is an action. It moves to action. It leads to action. It leads to sacrifice. A husband who has been enabled by the new birth and has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be what he should as the head of the wife, loves his wife in such a way that he is willing to lay down his life for his wife. His love is a sacrificial love. It's not a self-gratifying love. That's a totally different type of love. And it's not the type of love that Christ displayed for His church. How do we know that? He gave His life for His people. He carried His cross, nailed to it, bled and died to purify a people. What does it say later here? To present them holy and blameless. Now Paul tells us, i got to hurry here, Ephesians 5.24, Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should, should submit in everything to their husbands. So how submissive should the Christian wife be to her husband? According to the Apostle Paul, it should be total. It should be in everything. 
Hendrickson says, The submission of the church to Christ is voluntary, wholehearted, sincere, enthusiastic. It is a submission prompted not only by the conviction, this is right and proper because God demands it, but also by love in return for Christ's love. Let the same be true with respect to the submission of the wives to their husbands. Moreover, that obedience must not be partial so that the wife obeys her husband when the latter's wishes happen to coincide with her, but it's complete and it's in everything, not just when it pleases the wife. Now, how far does this go? Well, is the wife submit to submit to things even that are contrary to the commands of God? No. No. In those things, none of us are to obey a command that goes against God. No authority on earth can require any of God's people to do that which God forbids, or for that matter, to, do, to not do that which God does command. But even then, whatever takes place must be done in love, and in reverence to the one in authority or headship over us, or in this context, the wife. You see how contrary, though, this is to the flesh? Those in the flesh will not, and for that matter, they cannot submit to the headship of Christ. How are they going to submit to the headship of the husband? If there is what appears to be submission to those who live according to the flesh, to those that are lost, there's something to gain by it. It's something that they're doing because they'll receive something. Selfish reasons, because it benefits them. Or they're just in agreement with it. But that's the way of the flesh, and it's contrary to the way of the Spirit. But it is those in the Spirit who can be and do what God has called them to be. They are indwelt by the Spirit who empowers them and enables them to live as God has ordained His people to live and have the relationships that are as God has designed them to be. I told you I'd tell you about the Mrs. Lloyd-Jones story. She had a lady one time ask her, how far does this submission go? Do I have to do anything? And she, and she said, well, you know, what if, what if my husband wakes me up at 3 a.m. and wants some ice cream? And Mrs. Lloyd-Jones said, you go downstairs, get him some ice cream. I'm paraphrasing. Take it to him, and then you call the doctor because there's something not right about that man. <laughs> but do you see what she's saying? Even the man in Christ won't be perfect. Men will fail, and men will fail often, even Christian men. They'll fail to love as Christ loved. Women will fail and often fail 
at submitting as the church is to submit to Christ. But now, in this concept of marriage, and what I said earlier about marriage is the union between two believers, there's been a new birth that's occurred. In the new birth, there's even something provided for those times when there's failure. There's grace and there's forgiveness. There's peace, there's patience or long-suffering. There are the fruits of the Spirit at work in the hearts of those who have been born again. It lead to repentance, to turning again back to what they should be doing, living the way that they should be to honor their Lord out of reverence for Christ, submitting one to another. Well, this brings us to the place I think we better pause time-wise as well, but we better pause and we'll come back to, to look at the rest of this next Sunday. A few closing thoughts, though. To the men. We'll get to this next week, Lord willing. But there is no place for tyranny in this for us. No place for tyranny. Wives may say that all this about submissiveness is easy for the husbands to talk about and ask for. But the truth is what coming, what's coming in the next few verses is like Mike Tyson busting me in my face. So what we're going to look at is loving your wife as Christ loved the church. So you're telling me, I have to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I'm not telling you that. Scripture is telling you that. God's telling you that. Think about this as you go through your week. Read those next verses. Meditate on them as you go through your week this week. Wives, I'll say this. This submission should not be a laborious task if the husband is loving you as Christ loved the church. This should be a restful call. Restful call. Easy labor. What did Christ tell us in Matthew 11? Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He takes all the work of loving and caring and sacrificing upon Himself. Remember, this is a picture. Christ in the church, what Christ does for the church and provides for the church is a picture of what a man and a woman are in marriage. He takes all the hard work of loving and caring and sacrificing upon Himself so that His people, the church, the body may place the burden upon Him and find rest. I 
Husband and wives, are you living like this? Something we should be asking ourselves. Am I modeling for my children Christ's love for the church? To young ladies, do you see why it is so important not to be unequally yoked? How difficult to be in a relationship with an unbeliever. How important it is that the person that you're in a relationship with is not just a professing Christian, but a real Christian. Bearing fruit as evidence that there has been a new creation in them. Would you unite yourself to one that you can't submit to? If you are entering into a relationship with an unbeliever, how are you going to submit to them? If they themselves are not in submission to Christ, they don't know Him. Marriage itself to a Christian man will be difficult enough when he's got the flesh to fight against. But to be married or united to a man who doesn't fight the flesh but is ruled by it and under the dominion of the enemy of Christ will be devastating. It's hard enough to be married to another Christian. There's a great book written about the union of Jonathan Edwards and Sarah Edwards called um, Marriage to a Difficult Man. I think my wife is on her fifth volume of that that she's writing for us. Well, young man, let me ask you, are you looking for a woman you can love as Christ loves His bride? Can you love her in that way and lead her in that way that she can willfully in honor to God be submissive to you your union should be a picture of Christ and the church these are important things a Christian marriage shows to the world there is something Different here. God help us. Give us grace. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to help us, Lord, as we fight the flesh. Lord, give us more of the Spirit, more grace, more mercy. Give us more strength to live as you would have us to live, to be the husbands that you'd have us to be, the wives that you'd have them to be. Lord, that we may model for our children and for those who see us what Christ is to the church and what the church is to Christ. 
be with us this week and may our hearts meditate on these things. May we find that we are all submissive to you by your power, by your enabling. That we might bear a good testimony for the bride of Christ in this world. We thank you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.